Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 26 of the Impenetrable Cybersecurity no, no, Unit Podcast. No, no, that is not the name of this podcast. It, but it's such a great name. It is not a great name. It's, a, it's, it's The acronym is ICU. ICU too. ICU nice too. to see you again, my friend. Yes, uh, how about Impenetrable National Security Law Unit? How about just the National Security Law Podcast? You think that kind of just plain vanilla description will convey to listeners what this is about? I mean, it's gotten us this far. Yeah, well, I think that's a self-defeating <laughs> argument if I've ever heard one. Who are you? <laughs> I'm back from vacation. You are back from vacation. You look, you I, look well rested. This is Bobby Chesney, a professor at UT, and you are? Uh, Steve Vladek, and I'm Bobby, I'm also back from vacation. It's nice to be back. Um, it is, although, man, I enjoyed not being in the middle of a constant 24-hour news cycle of craziness. Well, that, that craziness did not abate while we were away, and now we have a lot to talk about. What are we going to talk about today? What are we going to talk about? Well, and what, so, is, what day is today? Oh, um, it's, well, it's Tuesday, July 11th. Uh, right. We're recording this in the morning, so it's about 10.30 Central Time on a, a nice, cool, brisk Austin summer day. Yeah, it, it has been over 100 for many days in a row, but I tell you, if it wasn't like this, at least part of the year... Think about the traffic would be how many more people. That's true. People might realize that like Austin's the best place in the world. It is the best place in the All world. All right. Um, so what are we doing today? Well, so I'm going to work backwards, Bobby, just to, to build some suspense. We're going to end the show with our mid-season baseball awards predictions. How All-Star Week appropriate. How All-Star Week appropriate. I, I dare say you might hear the name Aaron Judge. Well, because it's a legal podcast. It is a legal so podcast, really so we might as well start with the judge. Um, we're going to talk, Bobby, very briefly, I think, about some interesting developments in the Guantanamo military commissions. And then I think we also have um, a fair amount to say about, especially today's news, with Donald Trump Jr. Ah, so no, no more Donald Trump coverage. We're going to focus instead on Donald Trump Jr. There are some legal questions associated with uh, his meeting with the Russian lawyer. What meeting? That's now a character. That, that, that meeting <laughs> didn't happen. But then it did. Oh, it did? But then it turned out to be for a different reason. It was about adoptions. And then other things. Right. And now there are emails. And now there are the emails. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but we're actually going to start, Bobby, because this is at least putatively a national security law podcast. Um, we're going to start with some national security law in the form of, a, I actually think, quietly important decision by the D.C. Circuit um, in a drone strike case right before we went on vacation on June 30th. You know, I think it's a real sign of the times that you could have, a, you know, a major D.C. Circuit ruling on a drone strike case. And no and, one paid attention. It's just like there's no oxygen in the room for that. I mean, I think, I think I've seen one, I think Bob Loeb, um, mm -hmm. had a post yep. on Lawfare about yep. it, although it was a pretty short post right. to, to, to boot. Well, and in partly, you know, in fairness, partly it's because I think it's not a surprise the case comes out the way it did. Um, but let's let's unpack whether it came out the right way. All right. So uh, if you're if you're listening at home or I guess if you're by yourself. No, I just blew the Keith Olbermann line. Uh, the case <laughs> is called Ahmed Salem bin Ali Jabber versus United States. Decision by the D.C. Circuit on June 30th. Uh, Bobby, this case arises out of a drone strike um, related to a wedding in Yemen, right? Uh, basically, the, the claim is that even though the strike was targeting lawfully targetable um, al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorism suspects, it also created some incidental collateral damage that could have been avoided, right? That is to say, you know, the government, the U.S. had lots of other ways to go after these suspects that wouldn't have resulted in the deaths of all of these admitted civilians. What were the attempted causes of action? 
So the plaintiff sued under a pair of statutes, Bobby, the Alien Tort Statute um, and the Torture Victim Protection Act. Um, and the basic theory was that U.S. law prohibits what's called extrajudicial killing um, insofar as that extrajudicial killing is unlawful. Uh, and so the question is whether the extrajudicial killing of these Yemeni civilians um, in this drone strike exceeded the legal rules uh, that international law provides in such cases. All right. And so needless to say, there's there are many potential claimants in this position. You never see cases like this come to the merits. This one's not going to come to the merits either. Why not? So the, the Court of Appeals uh, affirmed the district court's dismissal of the lawsuit, Bobby, by relying on the political question doctrine. Now, oh, there's, a, there's a chestnut. You and I both teach constitutional law. We're both teaching it this fall. Woohoo! Yes! Um, in the same section, I think. That's right. That's right. I, I, have, a, do you, I have a small class. Yeah, I have, have a small, small class. All right. So I wonder if we have any. Hey, if you're listening and you're coming to UT this fall, and, and you're have, in section three, yeah, you're you gotta. You're, you're probably reaching for the phone right now to call the admissions office to retract. Your <laughs> Get me out of here. So listen, you only have a two-third shot of having one of us if you're in section three. Yeah, so you you have a one in three chance of, of having a good experience. <laughs> it's not us. Um, it's like Monty Hall. Let's make a deal. Can I take door number three? Um, all right. So so Bobby, why don't we spend a minute talking about the political question doctrine in general before? we talk about how to apply good idea yep so what is the political question doctrine professor chesney doctrine it's it is uh usually associated with baker v Carr. baker versus Carr. so my first the first thing i want to say about this here's the nutshell version this is the idea that courts sometimes decide that the issue that's been raised is not justiciable uh for what's called political question grounds. What that really means, and, and, and here I, I just don't like the label, right? Because yeah. it, it has a connotation as if, oh, it has to do with elections. Right. It has it's politics. politics. No, 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 it's not how it works. It's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for the idea that there are situations where the courts would prefer not to get involved for well, a or, or indeed where they may be disabled from getting involved, right? So, so the modern political question doctrine, Bobby, I think has two real threads. Right. The first is what's often shorthanded as the textually demonstrable commitment. There you go. Prong. That's where the issue is. Let's say, uh, should there be an impeachment? Right. That belongs in the first instance to the House of Representatives, and the last, and then and the last instance to the Senate. To the Senate, right? Exactly. And so, so there's actually a really interesting case from 1994 called Nixon. Yep. No relation. <laughs> the other this is Judge Nixon. Judge right? Walter yeah. Nixon yeah. Uh, versus the United States, where the Supreme Court holds that if you are a judge or anybody else who's impeached by the House and removed by the Senate, you can't bring a lawsuit. Right, challenging the procedures by which those things happened, because the whole purpose of the impeachment provisions in the Constitution is to commit that decision to the political branches, not to the courts. And would you say that the same thing is true insofar as there might be some attempted litigation surrounding, say, House or Senate rules of how they govern themselves, yep. that sort of thing? To a degree, although, I mean, there is this Powell versus McCormick case from 1969 um, that basically said it wasn't a political question when the House refused to seat uh, yeah. a member. So, you know, I, I don't want right. to get lost which in the is, weeds. Which just goes to show you, even on the thread that's textual commitment, which sounds like it's a little bit more doctrine-driven, a little yep. more black letter, there's still a little bit of this is a situation where the court would just prefer not to get involved. Right. And so that brings me to the second real thread which is definitely that. of the political question doctrine, um, which is cases that present a lack of judicially manageable standards, right? That's the language we often see. Bobby, I think the most frequent example these days is 
partisan gerrymandering claims. Right. And I do believe this is an issue we might be hearing more about. Well, the, the Supreme Court has, um, the technical term is deferred jurisdiction, but the realistic term is uh, plan to hear argument in the fall in a case called, I think, Gill versus... So Wisconsin? Or? I forget which. I, I just know it as Gil. yet another part, one of, one of the key acts in the upcoming potential yep. Kennedy swan song Indeed. season. It's a, it's a Kennedy special. So really quickly on, on this thread, the political question doctrine in this context is the idea that even if there's a constitutional violation, courts are not competent to articulate the line that places particular government conduct on one side of that constitutional line or the other. Partisan gerrymandering, there are a couple cases from about 10 years ago where four justices said this is categorically non-justiciable, four said it's justiciable, and Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence in the judgment saying, I think it could be justiciable, right. but you haven't yet shown yeah. me how. Political scientists need to step forward. And, of course, they part have. of what's going on now is they have risen Indeed. to Funny how it works. Now, so map all that onto the particular topics that we so care about. So this is where it gets weird. Yeah. Okay. So I've I've written an article that nobody has read um, called War and Justiciability, uh, which is in the Suffolk Law Review. It actually came out of a lecture I gave at Suffolk Law School a couple years ago, basically trying to map on the political question doctrine onto military litigation. Because the problem is, it would prove too much to suggest that all decisions about military force are textually committed to the political branches. How do you explain, for example, everything going on at Guantanamo? Right. right? There, there, well, there, you might say, well, that's different in the same way that um, it used to be the admiralty cases were mm -hmm. different. You have a res, in this case, persons. Mm -hmm. You have a persons or a thing, like a ship, and they've got their fate has to be adjudicated. You can't dodge it. Sort of, you have no choice but to litigate it. Whereas a decision to use force, well, that's already happened, or it's or it's perspective. Maybe these things can be avoided. How do, how does that fit with your theory? Yeah, I guess I just I don't know why that goes to the the either of the prongs of the doctrine, right? That is to say, if you take the doctrine seriously, which is that to be a political question, one of two things has to be true. It either has to be a matter that's textually committed to other branches or it has to present a lack of judicially manageable standards, yeah. I don't see why the status of the victim, right, is going to bear directly on the justiciableness of the claim. So here's what I think. I think that it, it, it shouldn't be a textual commitment thing, because to say that, look, the president's commander-in-chief, therefore— That proves way too much. That proves too much. Yep. I completely agree. I think it's got to be a balance of factors, mm -hmm. Baker v. Carr style. Well, like you know, you know, there's, there's foreign policy considerations. There's sensitivities. It's hard to say what the standard yep. is. And in the balance, the balance is different if you have the thing or the person in your power. So I guess, I mean, I guess I, I certainly agree that the most compelling cases are where you have the person or I like it when my arguments power. get uh, get that distinction. That I they, just, they're I, the best they could be, but not good enough. No, no, no. I just, I just don't know why it's so different when you have people who are dead, um, right? That is to say, especially because, and we talked about this uh, in our last episode with regard to Abbasi, I don't know why it's harder for courts to look at these questions right. in hindsight. Right. right versus while the thing's going on, and as you pointed out last time, it, there once was a time in our legal culture where that the ex post reassessment with the damages remedy behind it that was actually kind of the, the, the standard norm. way to go about things. We clear, but we've clearly transitioned, and now it's become the exception rather than the rule. Well, maybe. I mean, in some ways, I, I think actually we're inconsistent about it. But anyway, all right. So, yeah. so, so to cut to the chase, the line that the circuit courts have drawn because the Supreme Court hasn't touched the question of how the political question doctrine maps on to military operations. The line the circuits have basically settled around is a distinction between claims that military action is illegal 
and claims that it is unwise. Um, right, and and the circuits are in widespread agreement that a claim simply attacking a military operation on reasonableness grounds is non-justiciable under the political question doctrine, whereas a claim that a military action actually violates a clear statutory or constitutional command is justiciable. Right, that's that comes from an en banc 2010 DC Circuit decision called El Shifa um, about the destruction of a Sudanese pharmaceutical plant. Right, that's the 1998 uh, Clinton administration response to the East African embassy bombings. Right. Everyone remembers that there was an attempt. Well, we remember there was an attempt to take out Al Qaeda back in 1998 through a cruise missile barrage in Afghanistan. And at the same time, for good measure, uh, though I think they super regretted it after it after it happened, they decided to lob a few cruise missiles at this pharmaceutical plant in the Sudan on the theory that uh, Al Qaeda controlled it and it was a chemical weapons facility. And then later on, it, it turned out that, that that was probably mistaken. It was I think they said it was making baby formula. Of course, it turns out that's what it was doing. Um, and the litigation failed for the reason you said. The en banc D.C. Circuit said that's a political question violation. Um, it involves ultimately questioning the—the the, the word wisdom's thrown around. It's really about questioning the judgment. The wisdom, I think, has an unfortunate connotation there. It's really about second-guessing or, or, or Monday morning quarterbacking the judgment of the military commanders and ultimately the commander-in-chief as to whether or not the circumstance is such that you— did need to and properly identified the target of right. military action. So al-Shifa is obviously a huge problem for this case from the outset. This isn't the first time al-Shifa's proven to be a bad precedent for someone who wanted to sue about uh, drone strikes, including right. in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, that was right. I mean, but that was, so that's, so Bobby's talking about the first of two lawsuits by Anwar al-Awlaki's family on his behalf. This was the pre Killing of Anwar al-Awlaki lawsuit, which I think it was Judge Bates throughout, partly on political question grounds. Right. But I, I would just suggest that the pre-military operation lawsuit is much closer to me, Bobby, to a political question than the post, right? And indeed, after the drone strike against al-Awlaki, the lawsuit arising out of that wasn't dismissed on political question grounds. It was dismissed on other how shall I say, more merits-ish, right? More judgy Well, Here's, judgy the, here's the thing. I think it's important to flag, even if one wanted to pu push back the boundaries of political question doctrine, you know, challenging El Shif or otherwise, a case like this, it seems to me, is extremely unlikely to ever get to the merits because of the state secrets privilege. I think that's right. In the no, no, I, I think that's right. And so, and so part of what I find, so, so why don't we actually turn to what the D.C. Circuit said, right? Because part of what I find frustrating about this decision is not the bottom line, um, but the rhetoric and the language. Because yeah, I, I here we are in total agreement, it's, right? And it's remarkable. And what's remarkable, largely because of who's on the panel, right? So we should probably say a word about that. Yeah, so, let's explain. So the panel is three judges. Um, it's Judge Janice Rogers Brown, Bobby, who has apparently now announced that she's going to be retiring. That's shortly, right. That's right. Which, which I think also is interesting when we talk about her concurrence in her own majority opinion. Yeah. So we'll case. come back to Judge Brown in a moment. But also two uh, of President Obama's nominees to the D.C. Circuit appointees, uh, Judge Sri Srinivasan and Judge Nina Pillard, um, who I think I can say without getting into trouble, not the most like pro-government, sympathetic, anti-civil plaintiff like right. judges. It, you know, if, if nothing else, we can say that this is a panel that you know potentially could have uh, seemed to the distinguished El Shifa. If they'd really wanted to, they right. might have, and they didn't. And they didn't. All right. So the basic heart of the opinion um, is, if you if you if you are able to look at the opinion online, it's pages nine and ten of the slip opinion 
where the court basically walks through all of the ways in which it believes the plaintiffs are asking the court to, quote, pass judgment on the wisdom of I think this is a typo, executive's decision, I think I mean the executive's decision, yeah. mm -hmm. um, to commence military action mistaken or not against a foreign target, right? So they really go whole hog into the, you're not really asking us whether there was a statutory violation, you're asking us whether the government's actions were unwise. Yeah, the gravamen of the suit is to question the decision to pull the trigger in this instance, and there's no judicially manageable standard right. for that. But to me, I actually think the most important part of the opinion is a footnote, um, which happens more often than you might think. Is uh, it footnote four? Well, in this case, it's footnote one. Ah, good. Um, four's been retired. <laughs> Actually, they should Four not. has not been retired. It should be. All, it retired should be the like number? Row 13 on a plane. You should get to footnote three, and then it goes to five. Why? Because Caroline Products just did footnote four. So, and in honor of Jackie Robinson, no more footnote 42s? Absolutely. In all time? There's no limit to this. Um, so, that would be easy to do in Word Perfect. It would actually be pretty hard to do in Word. Is word perfect still exist? Unfortunately, my casebook co-authors insist. That is awesome. I know. It's it's miserable. All right. So, uh, and by the way, I, I love you guys, co-authors. Um, <laughs> so, so footnote one is where the Court of Appeals tries to distinguish the Fourth Circuit's uh, ruling in Al-Shamari. Guys, Al-Shamari is an Abu Ghraib torture case where the district court had thrown out the claims on political question grounds because it was basically... Um, asking the court to get into the business of reviewing whether these military contractors had acted properly in how they were detaining these uh, terrorism suspects in Abu Ghraib. Um, the Fourth Circuit said, no, that's not a political question, right? There are clear statutory prohibitions on abusive detainees. We can enforce those prohibitions, even if it won't always be obvious on which side of the line one person's case falls. And here's what the D.C. Circuit says about that. The Fourth Circuit's analysis, hinging upon whether the conduct of defendants was, quote, lawful or unlawful, unquote, puts the cart before the horse, requiring the district court to first decide the merits of a claim and only thereafter determine whether that claim was justiciable. Um, and then the obligatory, and in any event, in this circuit, al-Shifa and not al-Shamari controls. So I think that's actually descriptively incorrect, uh, right? That's to say, the Fourth Circuit is not saying we have to decide the merits to decide whether the claim is justiciable. The Fourth Circuit is saying the plaintiffs have to allege a legal right. violation. And so if we assume for the sake of argument that they're right, then this could go forward. And that's right. And, and so the question is, why is that different from this case where the plaintiffs allege violations of the Alien Tort Statute and the Torture Victim Protection Act? Right, which is in part leading me to want to say that this is really better resolved as a state secrets privilege. Oh, uh, we agree 100%. Anyways. Yeah. But, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, to me, the D.C. Circuit's analysis is too cute by half. Right, they've kind of pointed out where maybe this case could have gone forward. Um, and it, well, and indeed, and they've, and they've given short shrift to the reality that the plaintiffs had styled their claims in a way that should have fallen on the right side of that line. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I kind of tend to agree with you. I do think that you, what you have here are claims. I think they're, they're not meritorious, but there's yeah. claims that the statute's been violated. And so if that's— I'm not sure they're not meritorious. They may not, they may not be— Well, I know, I know you're not sure. No, no, but what I'm saying is I, I think the larger point is there are ways for the courts to avoid the merits that I would find less problematic. Right. I, I just think the whole exercise that the doctrine seems to— encourage some judges to engage in of trying to show that, well, there's no claim here of illegality, when of course there's a claim of illegality. 
it's it's a it's sort of distracting from what's really going on, which is at bottom a decision by courts that they don't want to engage the way they might with some run of the mill, say, business dispute when it comes to a military operation. And I think it's more honest and direct simply to say that this is an area in which we just think at the end of the day it's inappropriate for courts to get involved, or or even more directly to say. This case, to go forward in the merits, even if we wanted it to, we would inevitably be met with uh, state secrets privilege objections that go to the heart of the case. So imagine, it, Bobby, if the victims of the Stone Strike were American, right? Do you think the Court of Appeals would have come out the same way? Well, didn't Al-Awlaki? Um, not in the D.C. Circuit, right? And right, not after go, the no, fact. No, right, but didn't Judge Bates come out? I, I, I'm pointing to Judge Bates. Right, but bef- that was before the strike. What I'm saying is I, I, I don't think— that this analysis actually holds, because I think that in an appropriate case, that ha- the the DC Circuit would have said, "Oh, well, where Americans are concerned, of course it's justiciable. There's no like legal yeah. basis for that." I, mean, I, wonder, no... I, can, I can imagine it going either way, depending on the lineup of judges. But my concern now is that is that you know the DC Circuit is a very powerful court, right? It's often referred to as the second most important court in the land for reasons that are both sort of accidental and intentional. Almost as important as the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, or, <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, for reasons that are both uh, accidental and intentional, right, it gets a um, disproportionate majority of these interesting national oh, security cases. Yeah. And it strikes me that now folks are going to lose the nuance here, which is that, you know, the sort of um, reasonableness versus illegality distinction because of footnote one. And I think that's a real problem because it seems to me that when the military does something that a plaintiff plausibly alleges is clearly illegal, that ought to be justiciable. And I think you're right that this will be read broadly. Yes. And I think it will go hand in hand with this larger, we we talked about in the last episode, a larger long-term widespread trend to try to minimize exposure to damages actions. I think uh, exactly. And in this context, the reason why the, the... trend of the week to limit Bivens claims doesn't work, right, is because this is actually a, a good old-fashioned t- yeah. tort law claim. Right, right. There's, this isn't one we have to wonder, did Congress right. mean for there to be a remedy? Now, maybe, I mean, maybe the more analytically satisfying distinction to draw is between tort and criminal law, right? That maybe, maybe court should say, listen, if the military does something that actually violates a criminal statute, yep. like tortures a detainee, yeah. all right, that's justiciable. But if it's just a tort, um, that's not. Now, that's a lovely line. Um, I have no, I have no ability to see that in the political question doctrine as it's been thus far constituted. No obstacle. The whole thing's kind of being made up as it well, goes. Well, there is that. All right. So speaking of making things up as they go, <laughs> should we talk a bit about Judge Brown's concurrence? Yeah. So what, part of what's fascinating about uh, this particular case is there's there's an opinion for the panel that Judge Brown writes by Judge Brown. But she also includes her own concurrence. Does, does this remind you of another really important case in national security law? Hmm, what do you have in mind? Al-Bahani. Oh, yes. Well, it's it's clearly the case <laughs> that there are times when you can get your colleagues to sign on to what you're writing. And, and you there want are to times when you pen, can't. And sometimes you could have a separate part that they, that they don't join. Right. I actually kind of like this model. It's a little bit cleaner where you don't have to have, well, you know, the other judges join. Right. I joined parts, parts one, four, and footnote 16. Exactly. I hate that. Everybody hates that. It's <laughs> If you have something separate to say that your colleagues don't want to be associated with that directly, just throw in your own little concurrence. And, and Steve, is it fair to say that Judge Brown, who must have known that she was soon to be retiring, decided that she wanted to take this opportunity to... Uh, for an airing of grievances. Yes, this is this is a petition for redress of grievances. And what are her grievances? 
you know, she she really lays into the entire broad structure of. Uh, how, how would you put this, Steve? The government accountability? Government accountability and the way that various doctrines, including especially but not only the political question doctrine, create an environment in which uh, counterterrorism activity overseas doesn't get litigated. Yeah, so how here, about that? In, 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 these are her words. In this country, strict standing requirements, the political question doctrine, and the state secrets privilege confer hey. such deference to the executive in the foreign relations arena that the judiciary has no part to play. Okay, wrong! Right? First of all, the judiciary has plenty of a role to play. We talk all the time on this podcast about habeas cases, military commission appeals. Sure. Okay, but so so there's hyperbole. But I think I, I would have thought you would be, of all people, sympathetic to her, her hyperbolic description of the, the point we were making earlier, which is that in many ways you can't litigate yes, these cases. Yes, but her honor doth protest too much because some of the decisions that she's referring to are majority opinions that she wrote. So that's what's so interesting about this. Doesn't the whole thing seem so uh, against type that yes. she, she issues this sort of swan, what turns out to be a swan song, uh, a really passionate, I would say, actually rather intemperate and, and frankly, uh, all, to my read, almost embarrassingly uh, passionate, lots of kind of sweeping phrases of just the kind that led people uh, in talking about the travel ban decisions to compliment the Supreme Court for its very kind of dry right. addressing right. Of, of that As issue. Opposed to this is just the sort of thing I kind of associate with the more angry district court opinions about, say, Trump administration activity. Maybe, although, I, I mean, so the pro here's the problem. What I find exasperating about Judge Brown's concurrence, which I really encourage folks to read, forget the majority opinion, that's for the lawyers. Like, even if you're not a lawyer, you should read her concurring opinion. What I find exasperating about it is that I think she's so close to being onto something really important, but she actually misses the forest for some of the trees, right? So, so her basic bottom line is actually very much about drones, right? It's not about like the nature of national yeah. security litigation more generally. It's about the unique problems presented by drones. I think it's clear she believes that drones um, are used in circumstances where the U.S. would choose not to use military force otherwise, right? Something we've talked about a bit right. before. Um, and I think she's really nervous about the potential for non-reviewability, right? She says on page five, if judges will not check this outsized power, then who will? Yeah, I, and this is really where she starts to lose me. So it, it, is it true that the technology of not having to have a human being in the weapons platform in the air... Changes the structure of accountability? I, it, it, the whole thing seems really overstated. There's been endless numbers of ways that military technology has evolved over time that make it easier to use the force because the persons involved don't have to be put in harm's way. Right. It goes back to longbows. Right. Um, the, it strikes me as, as a bit odd. And as you say... Um, she has a history of involvement in rulings that, you know, don't seem to have previously shown this particular interest. It seems like something's changed. And this to me is really interesting because... Well, that's why I think it's about drones. Drones in particular. But do you think, Steve, that there's anything here about... Some have claimed there's a, there's a bit of a shift going on on the right. Yeah. You see this with concerns about surveillance and technology. Um, you saw this with the, the, the uh, GOP-controlled House Appropriations Committee the other day, uh, shocking everybody by signing on to uh, <laughs> uh, Representative uh, Lee's, Lee's. Uh, yep. you know, uh, 
bill or amendment. Sure. Likely to, to be short-lived to amendment to repeal to, the 2001 authorization right, for the use of military force. to end the AUMF. Yep. Um, and a lot of people have said, you know, it looks like under color of this larger shift on the right where you have this sort of a, a shift away from traditional more hawkish approaches in favor of more isolationist yep. or, or more skeptical of central government approaches. But the problem is this isn't, a, again, this is so much about drones. Like, I would I would agree with you, right, that this is part of that larger phenomenon if it were like our military in general is, is acting in ways that we should be worried about. Yeah, no, that's no, this, her, is, this is drone-specific. She's not talking about surveillance or right. other things. But I think it's it's a bit of a canary in a coal mine. Yeah, maybe. I mean, well, so so let's finish with the, her punchline. So her punch, she finally gets to the punchline on pages five and six. She says, despite an impressive number of executive oversight bodies, there's pitifully little oversight within the executive. I'm not sure how I feel about that. You and I have had a long fight before about how rigorous the internal mechanisms are. Um, certainly, I agree that they exist, right? Then she says, Congress, perhaps? Right. Um, then she says, "But congressional oversight is a joke. Yeah, and there, a bad one some at judicial that." Judicial language for you there. It's a joke and a bad one at that. Anyone who has watched the zeal with which politicians of one party go after the lawyers and advisors of the opposite party following a change of administration can understand why neither the military nor the intelligence agencies put any trust in congressional oversight committees. It seems so like that a lot's sounds going on here. That almost it? sounds Trumpian. Right? Like, you know, the oversight committees are captured, right? The oversight committees don't actually do their job. The The executive branch can't really trust them. Yeah, you know, it's. I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying she's wrong about the general thrust. No, this is what I'm saying. She's so close to being onto something so important, but, she seems, but she's grinding in acts that I don't understand. Well, I, my objection is I think she's overstating it. To say that there's nothing to it, I think, is... Oh, we haven't even gotten to the, the most overstated line yet. So Let's hear it. Our democracy is broken, period. You know, that may well be true, but I don't think it's got anything to do with this no, no, topic. That's what I'm saying. Right. So our, if I saw a statement, our democracy is broken, right, the next sentence I would imagine would be about, like, gerrymandering, yeah. right, or suppression of voting, right, or, you know... Um, I don't know. Fake news. Fake news. Like that, but know. no, our democracy is broken because there's inadequate oversight of drone strikes. Yeah, I don't. I just don't see it. And I don't think the case is made at all that Congress is asleep at the switch on drone strikes. No, I mean we talked last week, right, about the re- the the notif- the, no- the, the, uh, the notification language, right, for JSOC operations. Right. In fact, there there's been tweaks to the framework. I, the premise that's missing here is the case that there are some set of activities that took place with drones that shouldn't have taken place in the Congress. Congress should have said something about publicly, that sort of thing. Um, it, it It reads as if she very much believes all the worst caricatures of the drone program. That's right. That's right. And, and it's and just like blindly killing people. Which is what, so, so this is what I find so weird, right? Half of the opinion reads like she accepts the human rights organization's most conspiracy-driven yeah, view right. of drone strikes. Right. And the other half, and, and then the other half of the opinion is. Um, Woe is us if yeah. only there was something we could do about it. And she ends with this long quote from A Man for All Seasons. Oh, that part just killed me. It's like, like, I love that play. It's great. But it, it it's the sort of thing that I, it feels almost like what a student might do right. in, a, in a paper. You'd say, right. listen, this is a little intemperate. It's a little over the top. Um, but, you know, she, she knew she was retiring. And I think this was a swan song. And she wanted to say her piece. <sighs> I mean, listen, so, so you know, I've been very critical of Judge Brown before. She has been critical of me. Um, she's still a judge, and I'm not. But this concurring opinion strikes me as discordant in so many ways. Like, it's just, this is not the problem. Like, the problem in these cases um, is 
over-reading the political question doctrine. The problem in these cases is, you know, thinking that courts have no role to play because, you know, you don't think the courts are in a position to apply laws to the military. And while I don't think she's overread the political question doctrine here, I completely agree with you that it's it's a little bit awkward to claim that something outrageous is going outrageous. on. Outrageous! has got to be done. But your hands are really tied. Yeah, well, it's the last line, right? Um, the court's opinion has not hacked down any laws, though we concede the spindly forest encompassing the political question doctrine provides poor shelter in this gale. But it is all a judiciary bound by precedent and constitutional constraints may permissibly claim it is up to others to take it from here. No! It's not to, you have power. You are an Article Three judge. You have been directly responsible for circumscribing the ability, the availability of judicial review in these very contexts. Well, it's uh, it's almost a shame she's retiring. I would say because I would love to see what the future might have held for opinions from Judge Brown, Ugh. given this unexpected twist at the end of her career. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're not so sad, but I mean, listen. I, I listen. She she is an, she is a really thoughtful person. She's an Article Three judge, and even if I didn't respect the the robe, I would respect her, right? Yeah. But you know, this strikes me as a very navel gazing, concurring opinion that missed a really important opportunity to say some pretty important things about the structure of judicial review in the national security space. Totally agreed. Um, so let's talk about Donald Trump Jr. D. I don't know. JT I don't know. T Junior. I don't know what the segue. All is. right. So uh, yeah, there's no segue here. So we've got we've got all seasons. A, a situation that is consuming the headlines about and the you, meeting. And boy, do you mean consuming? And <laughs> wait, I don't get it. No, I just like while we're sitting here, like oh, my phone, my up? phone is blowing up. We're looking at the phone. We're trying to record a podcast. Oh, hold on, let me check my mail. Anyways, uh, text message from Bobby Chesney. <laughs> Somebody hacked my account. Uh, so the, the by the way, that never actually turns out to be true. What? Someone's actually account? The, the whole, no, the, the oh. athlete, like, I didn't mean to put, like, you know, oh, oh, J.R. Oh. Smith, right? Like, I didn't mean to, someone hacked my account someone and posted that. this inappropriate thing. When it's an inappropriate, embarrassing thing, the rule is, no, nah, they did it. Yeah, they did. All right, so speaking of inappropriate, embarrassing things. Okay, so during the campaign, Donald Jr. took a meeting. Uh, well, you tell me, because now we've actually got the documents, we the emails. emails that set it up. How did how did he describe, or how did the how did the emails describe the origin of this meeting. Uh-oh. And let's be clear, we ultimately are concerned here with simply exploring uh, the legal consequences, the potential criminal consequences of this story. It is obviously a huge political story. Let's note that, but we're not really here to to, to beat the drums on that. We're here to talk about what the, the legal uh, implications are. There are many people saying, aha, this is evidence of possible conspiracy or even direct violation of campaign finance Well, no, no, some people are saying treason and espionage. Okay, to, and, and, and to them, and, I want to say, no, go home, and thank you for playing. I completely agree that it is ridiculous, ridiculous to talk about this in terms of Treason and espionage. You, I don't think you might almost say that. inconceivable. Inconceivable. That word does mean here. What, what we think, what think it means. means. <laughs> uh, no, Although we, apparently it's not inconceivable because yeah. all these people are going on TV and conceiving it. These days that doesn't uh, prove a thing. Yeah. So the interesting question, the, the, the legally interesting question is, how does uh, the campaign finance rule about receiving things of value from a foreigner, how might that tie in here? And I think we have a disagreement. All right, so, so, right, so. But we should unpack the fact pattern more. Well, let's start at the top, right? So not treason, because we're not with Russia. Not espionage, because there's no national security information, right? Right, so Um, as a side. Bobby, if you and I had a meeting tomorrow with senior Russian government officials, 
right? That that's fine, right? Not illegal. Okay. Now, but what if I'm running for office? Okay. So. Or what if my father is running for office? So this is where things get interesting, right? It's still not necessarily illegal just to have the meeting. I sure hope not, because I think it happens all the time. Well, and indeed, and there might be First Amendment problems at that point. That's right. Okay. Um, campaign finance law, as I understand them, and I should say, neither you nor I are campaign finance law experts or nerds. I'm going with what the nerds are saying. Right. We're just channeling. We're nerds channeling other nerds. And, and let me just let me just. Uh, uh, my two favorite nerds in this space are Rick Hassan right, oh, yeah. from UC Irvine yeah. and former White House Counsel Bob Bauer. Um, who has a four-part series of posts, although I suspect by the end of today it could be an 11-part series of posts <laughs> on just security about this topic. Um, and as I understand it, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, the basic thrust of the campaign finance law is it is a violation of campaign finance law if you are affiliated with a campaign to solicit, receive, or uh, what, accept, I, I remember what the exact language is, um, a, co- a donation of money or a thing of value from a foreign national. Is that, is that a relatively Let's good? See, I, I think I've got the, the text here. So we're looking at uh, 2 U.S. Code. Um, let's see. Is it 52? Is it 52? I think it's 52. Hmm. Yeah, you look that up while we're talking. <laughs> I'll, I'll tread water and try to keep the crowd distracted. Um, both the, uh, the the relevant act and commission, federal campaign right. uh, uh, commission regulations prohibit foreign nationals directly or indirectly from making a, quote, contribution or donation of money or other thing of value in connection with the federal, state, or local okay, election. So, so that, that, that's the outward-facing prohibition, right? That's prohibiting the foreigner from doing it, right? right? There's a separate piece of it that prohibits individuals from actively soliciting, right, or accepting those very prohibited donations or contributions. So the question is, did the interaction that Donald Jr. had with the, the Russian lawyer. The, the Russian government attorney, the, who, as he refers to in his emails. Right. Okay. Let, let's, I want to come back to that because I think it's fascinating <laughs> that he, you know, it's framed that way. So his interaction with this Russian attorney. Yes. Um, did the interaction uh, entail a contribution or donation of a, of a thing of value? It obviously was not money, but was it a thing of value in the sense forbidden by the statute? So, so let, and, and I right. think the answer is no, but. Well, so what is, so let's talk about what the thing is, right? So, so the, apparently, right, the, uh, the Russians say we have information that can harm the Clinton campaign. Right. Dirt, I think. We have dirt, the, right? Yeah. We have dirt. Um, and I think Junior said something like, if that's so, right, that's great. Right, like you know, I'm in. By his, you know, let's be clear. By his own account, he took the meeting. His his second account, not his original account. The original account was <laughs> this was I the Saturday a, story. Right. So the, well, no, no, no. The original account was the meeting didn't happen. Right. There We're on to the third version. <laughs> I don't have a dog. If I do have a dog, my dog didn't bite you. If it did bite you, you weren't hurt. And, and, and if you were hurt, it was justified. Yes, <laughs> it's arguments in the alternative, That's right. my friends. That's right. So once the meeting was acknowledged, the original account was this was about the problem of how Russia suspended and, and forbade the, the continuation of the adoption program that many American families used to use to adopt uh, Russian children. By the way, that program was suspended as a response to American sanctions. So the adoption issue is integrally uh, tied in with the sanctions on Russia. So anyways, he, the original story was that's what this meeting was going to be about. And there's no, and it seems no question that that topic did come up. 
um, which is sanctions related. Yep. Secondly, the the revised account was well, actually, you know, the the reason I took the meeting was they signaled that they had some dirt on the Clinton campaign. Specifically, they were potentially going to give me information that Russian sources were illegally funding right. Clinton, which has a a great kind of projection. <laughs> sort of. That was the Sunday story, right? That right. was version three. Version three. And now I think we're on to version four, which is now that we actually have the emails. And tell tell us about the emails. So um, apparently, so one might wonder in what universe a sane person would voluntarily disclose all these emails. Apparently, Junior said he did it because the Times, ha- the New York Times has them, and so he assumed they were going to get out anyway. So he's going to draw the sting by putting his emails out there. So he's released the emails that preceded the meeting. What did they indicate about what the purpose of the meeting was? To, to, to get dirt on the Clinton campaign. Right. So the question is, help the Trump campaign. if you replace get dirt and information on the Clinton campaign with to receive a bag of money, right. then you'd clearly have a problem under the statute. Good. So let's start there. So you and I are in 100% agreement that if the Russians had shown up to this meeting with a bag of money, right? Hey, we'd like to help the campaign. Sure. That's the paradigm of what the statute's trying to forbid. So why is it so hard, I I put to you, sir, to to look at um, information that is directly beneficial to the Trump campaign, directly harmful to the Clinton campaign, that also, by the way, allows the Trump campaign to solicit additional contributions from donors? Why is it so hard to think of it as a thing of value? All right, let's start with the first part. Why is it hard to think of it as a thing of value? Set aside the utility of it to leverage to get other people to give money. No, no, not more money. Money. To get money. Uh, It's not money in the first instance. It's not finance. It's in no way related to finance. And this is a statute about campaign finance. So if you're providing money or things that you would have had to pay for, except now they've been donated to you, like the use of my concert right. hall for your event. Or here are computers. Or, yeah, things. Infrastructure. Things that, yeah, if you're finding substitutes for money or money itself, that obviously is covered. It seems to me that information is a bridge too far. Indeed, as you said earlier, I think it has First Amendment implications. Okay, but so so we've talked before on this podcast about 18 U.S.C. Section 641, right, the federal conversion of property statute. Okay. Which has been used in the context of leak prosecutions um, to go after leakers on the theory that by sharing information with foreign governments or with news journalists, right, they are converting, that is to say, depriving the United States of a thing of value. But you're but you're comparing a, a statute that has nothing to do with campaign finance to a campaign finance statute. But the, why the, but the campaign why in the context- finance statute is concerned with controlling the role of money in politics. I don't think it's. I don't. Oh, I disagree. I think the campaign finance statute is concerned about controlling in, uh, improper influence in politics, and there are lots of ways to convey improper influence. Yeah, Money is, is just influence? one of them. How is it influence? We're the Russian government, and we're here to help you win the election. But we expect nothing in return. We're doing this out of the goodness okay, so, of our heart. So there, we that, expect no quid pro quo in response to all these things we're doing. So that's that puts the argument as well as it can be put that this wasn't just. Hey, here's helpful information. We hope you win. Right. But I'm deep throat. Pro right. I'm deep throat and we're meeting in a garage. I get nothing out of this other than the, you know, knowing the truth and justice is going to emerge. What, okay, so but the quid pro quo is going to be what? What is Donald Trump Jr. or Paul Manafort or what are the Trump campaign people giving them in return that they're not already trying to do, not already win? Where's, where's the thing that the Russians don't otherwise get? Um, well, I don't know about don't otherwise get, but this all goes toward getting Donald Trump elected. Yeah, but I, th- I think this is different than saying, all right, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's quid pro quo. 
I well, so so let me be clear. The statute doesn't require a quid pro quo, right? What I'm trying to say no, is— No, but your argument about turning this no, no. information into a thing of value No, does. but right. So the value to me, right, is the um, extent to which it creates a sort of additional likelihood, right? It, non-frivolous additional likelihood that Donald Trump— is elected, that Hillary Clinton is not elected, um, and let's not even begin to talk about all of the financial implications of Donald Trump's election. I mean, right, we're, we, we're, we're, I don't want to get into emoluments and all that But nonsense. I don't think that, that proves too much because that, that's a secondary effect. We need to look at the, the first order nature of the thing being provided, the information. Here's, here's my concern, and here's why I'm resisting you on this. Yeah. I don't see where we can draw the line for any number. If you take Russia and collusion and all the Trump right. stuff out of it, just suppose the Japanese government, right? The, suppose the ja- it's, 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 a, it's a Minnesota mayoral race, right. and there's conversations with Canadians having to do with Minnesota-Canada issues, mm-hmm. and there's information being provided that's... Ah, uh, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty and, there, the, yeah, and the disputes well, arising therefrom. You know, the, the Caroline Doctrine is always irrelevant. And Donna Moss being born on the wrong side of the line. I don't even know what that's a reference. That is a super. <laughs> that is a super random Western reference to the episode where uh, they think Donna Moss actually is Canadian. <laughs> the secret Canadian. Yeah, basically. And did they check the birth certificate. Uh, well, no. The, the, they move the line. They move a line on a map, and so where she was born ends up on the wrong side oh, of the this line. This is like in what was our name? Or what was our word about the Rio Grande moving? Creative? Oh, the Limitrophe. The, the Limitrophe. I knew the Limitrophe could. All right. So it, was it an impenetrable Limitrophe? Oh gosh. All right. So, anyways, my point is, I'm worried about where would you draw the line if providing information right. that could help you in your campaign, if that's a thing of value, yeah. without a quid pro quo attached, like, all right, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm paying you for this, that sort of thing. If it's if it's a conversation with foreign nationals, they're giving you information that helps you. Maybe it helps you by damaging your opponent, as in this case, or maybe it helps you by just giving you good arguments. If that becomes a violation of campaign finance laws, I think we've proved too much. I also think it's hard to know a reasonable person to foresee what's forbidden. So so let me back up. Okay, so so let me take those in order. Actually, let me take those in reverse order. All right. Um, Whatever the hell the prohibition is, right? There's, I don't know how a reasonable person could walk into the meeting that Donald Trump Jr. is now describing and think that it was okay. Right? Think it's okay politically or criminally? Both. I think you could. I don't. I think it's perfectly obvious that you wouldn't think you were committing a crime walking into that. I meeting. don't know. I, I. Why? Where? So. 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 You know. This. The. The Trump supporters have been saying, well, everyone conducts oppo research, and of course, the oppo research includes conversation with foreign governments. That is insane. I have never heard of a political campaign conducting opposition research with the help of foreign intelligence agents. Completely agree, but I don't think I have to hang my hat on that particular hook in order to sustain the argument that when they walked in there, they certainly didn't reasonably imagine that. I know we're, yeah. I know we're going to do something so here. It's a violation okay. of campaign listen, finance. So, so I, I want to betray. I, I've been fighting with you for ten minutes, right? I want to betray my prejudices. I'm not sure it's a violation of campaign finance laws, but I don't think it matters. Um, I don't think it matters for two reasons, right? One, it is certainly a huge political issue. No, no question about right? that. No, it's a huge. We're completely agreed but, on but, that. But but two, I suspect that a whole bunch of federal laws were broken in regards to the meeting, having nothing to do with the meeting itself. Right. So here's where we can find common ground. So set aside what I think more persuaded than you, what I think is not a legal problem yeah. in, 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 in the ultimate sense. Yeah. What are the real legal problems here? Might it be something to do with the failure to disclose this previously? What might have been said to the FBI? Where are the real legal obstacles? So I think the real legal obstacles come in two forms here, right? I think the first is good old 18 U.S.C. 1001, 
uh, the false statement statute. Don't lie to those FBI agents. And don't lie on your SF-86. Right. Now, okay, so first with the FBI investigators. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the public record doesn't show that Donald Trump Jr. has been interviewed by the FBI. I don't know if he has or if he hasn't. Yeah, he might have been. Might not be, so we don't know that. But if he but has. he wasn't the only one at that meeting. Right. And we can be pretty sure Paul Manafort. Has already talked to the FBI. And Jared Kushner. Yep. And it's not hard to imagine, this is speculation, but it's not hard to imagine they were asked questions that should have elicited disclosure of this meeting. Maybe maybe they did. But it's also easy to imagine that maybe they didn't. Well, so here's why, here's why it's really easy to imagine maybe they didn't. Because we know that on his SF-86, Jared Kushner did not refer to this meeting. Yep. And so, and so that's just now talk about the criminal implications of false statements or omissions, material omissions. So a, mater- a, 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 a knowing material omission on an, SF, on an SF-86 is a violation of the false statement statute because you sign your SF-86 under penalty of perjury. And is, do, is there any plausible account as to why it was omitted that would, that would be exonerating? Um, so the only, the only, the only justification for omission that would be exonerating is, is that I really forgot about it. Yeah. And, and given, you know, I just, the more that comes out about this meeting, the less I can understand how Jared Kushner could have forgotten about it. Right. Cause they, they thought this might be potentially saucy enough to where they brought in the campaign manager to see what the goods might be. Oh, but we forgot about it. Right. So I think that the, the takeaway here is this really uh, turns up the heat or increases the, the danger of prosecution for both Jared Kushner and for Paul Manafort. Uh, I'm not sure it does that at all for Donald Trump Jr. I don't think he's nearly as exposed. It depends. I mean, it depends on things we don't know, which is what he said. And indeed, we don't know if he filled out any paperwork, right? I mean, That's right. That's right. you know, Ivanka surely has filled out an SF-86. Well, you know, she goes to the G20 and represents oh, our country gosh. in her official capacity. <laughs> um, so I think I, I'm, I'm going to say something in politics. Is the, talking is, about so that. I'll try to try to help you out by just continuing to talk. <laughs> is it possible that this is yet another example of it's not the crime, it's the cover up? Oh, a hundred percent. And and if, if if folks take nothing else away from this conversation, right? Um, you know, you and I have different political views, right? Um, I think not as different as it might seem sometimes, but but different enough, yeah, yeah. right? I'm sure plenty of our listeners have different political views. What I think is increasingly clear and ought to be clear, no matter where one falls on the spectrum, is that um, things have been denied that happened, right? No, 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 no question. Look, Julian Sanchez said something early on in this whole crazy collusion process where he said, look, at the end of the day, it's very unlikely there's going to be some smoking gun overt collusion. What, the, what there's going to be is a, is a lot of cover up. And that itself is a big deal, and it's potentially criminal. And he warned people, don't get so hung up on the collusion story because it may not be provable. That's right. And I think he was right about that. So, but but I guess the more important point is whether or not it's provable. It's not. It may not matter, right? Because at the end of the day, there much there might be far clearer crimes, right, arising yeah. from false statements, arising from failure to register as foreign agents in the case of Flynn and Manafort, right? I mean, like I guess what yeah. I'm trying to say is, you know. Let's not get lost in the in the in the legalistic fight over the campaign finance question here, right? Let's remember the original story was this meeting never happened, right? It's it, and so bottom line takeaway, it's possibly an error to try to fit this into some substantive direct. You can't have that conversation. You shouldn't have it. But to say it's criminal is is a much tougher sell. But you certainly can't go around lying about it or failing to disclose it when getting your uh, clearance. Well, and then criticizing everybody who's trying to get to the bottom of it for trying to get to the bottom of it. That's right. Right. Like, you know, it seems like 
every one of these stories gives only further credence to those who say we need to know more. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing how self-defeating it all is. Um, so we should go into lightning round mode because we've probably uh, been waxing uh, overly. Verbose. So we wanted to talk briefly about Guantanamo. Yeah, right? we've and, got a trio and, of interesting little uh, military commission related things. What have we got? All right. So um, first, right in the most, I think, Bobby, you and I agree, important of the military commission cases, the 9-11 trial, right, the trial of the five detainees who are alleged to have been the masterminds behind the 9-11 attacks. We had an interesting decision by the CMCR. This is the Intermediate Court of Military Commission Review, the sort of first appellate round after the trial court. Right, so not Article Three judges. Right, Article. well, <laughs> indeed, as as we will talk about <laughs> when, uh, in, in that halcyon day when we talk about my cert petition. But, all right. Um, so it's, so a stat- it's a statute of limitations ruling. Yep. Now, I... I don't think I may be wrong here, and I'm happy to be corrected, but I don't think this is terribly controversial that war crimes are not subject to a statute of limitations. The uh, so, well, so, so why don't you tell folks what the trial court had ruled? Uh, right. So that so the trial judge had thrown out two of the charges. Right. No, not two of the most important charges, just no. two of the many charges. Right. And do you? I don't remember which two they were. Do you? Um. The, da, 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 um intentionally causing serious bodily injury. Um, and there was one more, uh, I don't remember the other one. Um, there was one other, uh, there was one, I mean, the, this wasn't the whole case. Right, right? no, no, no it was, it These were peripheral charges. But they've been added back in on the ground that they, they were dismissed improperly on statute limitations Because grounds. the case was filed, um, I think it was five years maybe, right, right? after, after right. the, the, um, so it, it had these offenses been charged in the court martial system, against our service members, there was a clear statute of limitations in what's called the Uniform Code of Military Justice that would have applied and precluded the charges. And indeed, the military trial judge had thrown out these charges by reference to the analogous court martial statute of limitations. And the Court of Appeals, the CMCR's ruling was, ah, but there's no statute of limitations on war crimes. So as a general proposition, that's kind of black letter stuff. Did you know, Steve, there's actually a convention on the non-applicability statutory limitations to war crimes and crimes against humanity. It's been around since 1968. The United States is not party to it. But but let's take advantage of it anyway. Well, it's out there. More importantly, it's widely thought to be customary international <laughs> oh, law. Oh, and so now we like customary international law because it's, it's bad for the defendants. Yeah, that, that, that was my theory. Uh, <laughs> it's Rule 160 of the uh, Red Cross's customary international law study. Right. And it's it's not considered controversial. The interesting question the is... The principle's not controversial. The principle's not controversial. The interesting question is were these particular offenses in the category of war crimes. So here, so this is where I'm going, right? Which yeah. is we have talked before ad nauseum about how the single biggest jurisdictional question lurking over the military commissions is whether they can try offenses that are not clearly recognized international war crimes. There's a cert petition pending in the Supreme Court on this very question. The government's brief in opposition is due on July 31st. And so the CMCR turns around and says, of course there's no statute of limitations for war crimes. Never mind that we, the CMCR, have already said Said, some of the offenses you can try in a military commission aren't war crimes. Right. And so if, if listeners are wondering, like, what are they? Well, they're domestic law offenses. Yeah. Domestic law offenses. Inchoate conspiracies. Which, so, in, so this leads us directly to the, another big development that I think follows immediately from this. So I, I want to get to that in a second, yeah, right? Okay. So so that's, so that's the I have two problems with this. And the first is, you know, the assumption these are all war crimes when the CMCR does and should know better. Problem number two, the UCMJ is specific. Right, as the statute of limitations. And in the Hamdan case in 2006, part of what got the Bush military commissions into trouble 
was that they departed from the UCMJ's specifications, right, without without the requisite finding that there's a need to do so. Exactly. Um, now, the Military Commissions Act took away the, that requirement, the Article 36 requirement, that you can only depart when you have a practicability right. finding. But it's still not clear to me why the assumption would be that Congress in the MCA sub silentio, right, overruled the statute of limitations that would otherwise have applied under the UCMJ. Oh, I don't know. I, th I think that's not that... Yes, it would be sub silentio, and there's always a question mark around that. It would that. be better if we were a party to the 1968 convention to which you referred, because then you could argue that that supersedes, you know, the UCMJ. I guess so, but I think that it the, it's very well established that war crimes, as a general proposition, don't have a statute of limitations. I don't think it's that hard to So we're to back read to the problem into. number one. The, the really interesting question here is not so much these offenses, because yeah. as you say, these are minor add on yeah. charges in, yeah. a, in a case that's primarily about things. Involve the killing of civilians. Much more interesting is when it's a charge that is hotly contested for its war crime status. And uh, that brings us to the latest developments with Omar Khadr, the Canadian. Uh, he was a teenager in Afghanistan whose father was uh, involved in al-Qaeda, famously uh, captured and came into U.S. custody in the aftermath of a firefight in which uh, one American soldier was killed, another one partially blinded and was a teenager at Gitmo and, and became sort of famous both because of his youth and because of his Canadian citizenship. And then thirdly, he is one of the handful that does get charged with the war crime. And, and one of the key charges against him is the idea that his participate his alleged participation in that firefight, which involved, you know, killing, uh, allegedly involved killing and wounding and attempting to kill and wound American soldiers, was itself a war crime. Now, that's interesting because we're not talking about attacks on civilians. We're right. talking about attacks on soldiers. And we're also talking about a someone who was a juvenile at the time, right, which triggers questions under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So I don't— But I guess now we don't care about customary international law. Uh, I don't know about that, but I think I think that it's far from clear. Although it's clearly the case that his his relative youth, you know, using child is is a little bit. Uh, I said juvenile. Yeah, yeah, right. So teenager, he's a 15 year old. Let's set that aside. The question is, is it a war crime for anybody? Let's just, just change the fact pattern. He was 38 years old. Same charge. Yeah, no, I agree. Same charge. Still a question. Is that a war crime? Yeah. Now, here's something that gets missed a lot here. If even if it's not a war crime, there is no question that he had no privilege. To engage in combat, so it's it's murder, it's attempted murder, it's battery, it's all these things. It's assault with a deadly weapon. He's clearly acting unlawfully in the sense of using force at all, no matter who he's fighting with. That doesn't necessarily make it a war crime. And indeed, prior to the effort in the uh, first round of the military commissions to define the use of force by someone who doesn't have combat privilege as in itself a war crime. Right. The, the standard analysis would have been, well, that was an unprivileged use of force. It's, it's not a war crime if you weren't attacking civilians or using perfidy or something like that. Um, they tried to convert this into a war crime by saying that, look, just using force as an unprivileged belligerent, that in itself violates the laws of war. Deeply controversial. Now, he, he cuts a plea deal and gets sent off to Canada at a certain point, but he pleads guilty to this. Yeah. Uh, this is some inside baseball. I think it's really important and interesting. Um, we still have a problem with this possibly being the U.S. position, mainly because of the Manual for Military Commissions. So the Military Commissions Act of uh, 2009 includes uh, killing in violation of the laws of war. But it's written in a way that just says, you know, if you kill someone and it violates the law of war when you did so, that's killing in violation of the laws of war. Why, that's a that's a 
tautology, that's, that sounds fine. It depends on whether you are claiming underneath that that just not being a privileged combatant makes all your uses of force as war crimes as opposed to simply being murders and attempted murders, which is the conventional view. Um, we are told from some media reports that there was a huge fight between DOD and Jay Johnson on one hand and State Department and Harold Coe on the other, trying to get the Military Commission's manual, which would elaborate what this charge should involve, trying to remove any reference to the idea that it's a war crime simply to use force when you don't have privilege. Uh, and the DOD won that battle. And sure enough, there is language in the relevant part uh, of the Military Commission's manual uh, describing this particular offense that includes, quote, murder committed while the accused did not meet the requirements of privileged belligerency. That's the same, <laughs> that's the same I think, highly problematic interpretation of war crime uh, as was used in Cotter's case. Now, all this comes up because Cotter, who's back in, in Canada and now free, uh, had sued the Canadian government for 20 million Canadian dollars, and they, they've reached an agreement, and he got a, or is getting, as we speak, a 10.5 Canadian million, million dollars Canadian. But it's only Canadian dollars. So it's like eight million U.S. He's getting eight million bucks. There's a dodgeball joke to make here, by the way. Oh, but I'm, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow. You're, you're way over my head on that one. We should pay it in Canadian dollars. So he's in the news again, and there's been this renew, new uh, attention to the fact that there is this problematic interpretation still on the books, and that's kind of a watch that but space this is, for but this future is all, charges. But this is also all going on while the one, the wife of one of the victims of the attack has obtained a default judgment against Cutter, as well as the soldier who was partially blinded. Right, thirty-four million bucks, which they're now. I think or is it one thirty-four? I think it's one thirty-four. And I think, and I think now the question is, are they going to try to enforce that judgment against him in Canada? I sure hope so, and I think Ooh. I would imagine. Imagine they're they're going to. Uh, now I don't think the Canadian courts are going to pay out on it, but right. I imagine they're going to try. That's going to be quite a fight. In fact, I'd be very surprised if they haven't already begun filing papers. They won a Utah default judgment right. for wrongful death. I think it was under Utah common law. So I think that's right. Um, so this leads to the third and stupidest Guantanamo news story, right? Of the la of the fortnight, I guess it's been since we last recorded. Yeah, this one. This one's... But so so this story, Bobby, it is stupid and yet so emblematic of why Guantanamo is such a cluster. All right, right? so what, what's this business? I actually don't know the details, so I'm actually looking forward for you to tell me what's the deal with this boat <laughs> issue? All right, so uh, Colonel Pohl is the judge in charge of the 9-11 trial, the one who, by the way, was just reversed by the CMCR. Um, on the statute of limitations, on the statute limitations issue. issue. Um, and Colonel Pohl um, has a very strong sense of the importance of segregating himself and his staff from all other military commission personnel, which is kind of hard to do when you're all flying there together and when you have to get from the windward to the leeward side of the base on the same ferry. That's kind of a nice, I, I appreciate the sentiment. It's the right, it's the right idea, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I have to be above even the appearance of impropriety. Yeah. You know, now, mind you, if this were an Article Three judge, he wouldn't care at all about it because he's like, whatever, I'm an Article Three judge, no one's worried about me. So yet again, right, we're, we're trying hard to go through the motions. You say that, but if, if an Article Three judge was catching a ride to work every day with some of the, some of the litigants or the litigators, that, that'd be problematic. It would be an appearance of impropriety, wouldn't it? I, I'm not sure that's true. I, I think we wouldn't be. I, I think the judges are so sensitive because of the uniqueness and the legitimate. Uh, anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah. Be that as it may. So one of the things that he had arranged for is um, 
you've been to Guantanamo, right? Oh, yeah. We've both been Twice. there. Um, the airport is not where all the stuff is. Right. You land on one side and you you get a boat that goes across the other side. And why did you get a boat? Because the only other way to get there is through Cuba. Right. Now, I guess now maybe you could. Well, actually, you could for a few months maybe, and now you can't again. <laughs> all right. So you take a boat. You take a ferry across the Guantanamo Bay. Um and um, so apparently the judge had arranged, right, for most of the time he'd been going down, even though he can't be on a separate plane, because it's only one plane, to have be on a separate ferry, right, that a special boat would, would ferry him and his staff across the bay to avoid as much as possible interactions. And apparently the new commander of the Guantanamo Naval Base has said, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, it's costly. Um, it co- it's costly. It takes my people away from fighting the iguanas. You know, I really need to stop this. Well, and I, I got to say, I, I'm sympathetic to the commander because, you know, if you've already had to ride on the plane that whole way, the idea that that brief boat ride makes that much of a difference is, is I think, a That's little That's fine. Silly. But so just like when the, con- the the former convening authority ordered all the judges to move to Guantanamo until the cases were <laughs> over, um, I think we've lost sight of the fact that the judges have the big stick here. So the judge... Well, they do response, have some leverage, don't they? So the judge's response was to postpone all proceedings in the 9-11 yeah. trial until this is restored. Yeah, I got to say, I think that's inappropriate. Fine, but who's going to reverse him? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. Could you not take it up to the CMCR? I mean, the government theoretically could, except that they'd have to ask the CMCR for a writ of mandamus, which the CMCR doesn't think it has the power to issue. So then you go to the D.C. Circuit? Which has a really high standard for writs of mandamus. I mean, like, you know... But surely this could be a case for it. I mean, it just, Listen, it just, just seems, it seems almost petty. It, it's completely petty, and it is a perfect embodiment of Guantanamo. Like, to understand why it's taken 15 years to produce eight prosecutions of nobodies, right, and yeah, Look, we're still in pretrial proceedings in the 9-11 case, it's because for every one of these stupid, petty, you know, asinine grievances... Everything stops. Everything stops. Yeah, completely agreed. No, it's crazy. And if we and, and I I resubmit that if this were in the Article Three court system, we wouldn't be having this problem. So have they uh, have they resolved it yet, or is no. it, everything's uh, this absolutely insane? And by the way, if you don't follow Carol Rosenberg on Twitter, you're doing it wrong. Sure, she's she's she is the uh, the reporter of record for Guantanamo. It seems. Uh, all right, that I think exhausts our planned topics, We've except for midseason awards for baseball. Indeed. So uh, right, the All Star Game is tonight. I'm, uh, I'm really. Excited, I guess. Although apparently this one doesn't have consequences because they took away the whole World Series. Anyway, I think that you know, I think they could improve the All Star. What do you think about having more of a draft approach? You get captains, and then they draft. Or 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 U.S. born players versus foreign players, right? Just something. Or or change. (laughs) I think that might exacerbate some current tensions. Or or change the rules. I mean, or or play with slightly different rules and play with different rules. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, right? Do what hockey does. Yeah, play it. Yeah, so play it outdoors. (laughs) <laughs> all right so winter classic so so let's quickly run through the traditional awards. make the all-stars oh, play wiffle ball gosh let's quickly run through the traditional awards and then we'll do some untraditional awards all right all right uh bobby al mvp has to be aaron judge agreed al rookie of the year has well. to be aaron judge <laughs> aaron judge it really i gotta say i i regret so much not drafting him in my fantasy league yeah that was a, that was a, that was a bust um, oh my god so so this is my, bobby can you name the two other individuals in major league history who have been both rookie of the year and mvp uh did mickey mantle pull that off nope uh then, then i'm at a loss what have you fred got? lynn and ichiro each, oh yeah, Each, okay. a little oh. asterisk next to the the fairly well advanced. No, no, no. If you don't count, if his hits in Japan don't count, then he was a rookie. <laughs> they ought to count. Well, I agree with there that. You go. Too. All right. Actually, I don't think they should count. So I'll give him a rookie. All right. Um, uh, nationally. Oh, sorry. Al Cy Young. Al Cy Young. Um, Aaron Judge. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I, it's 
It's got to be Chris Sale, right? So, you know, Chris Sale, I, I want to suggest that it's still possible for Marcus Stroman with a strong second half to, to, to compete for it. I wonder, we know this is not unlike our MVP in the NBA discussions. Yeah. Or Dallas Keuchel, if he comes the, back healthy. You know, he is on my team, and I'm an Astros fan. I, I wish that uh, I wish he would. He was having a great comeback year after having a disappointing prior year. Uh, I think Sale's going to run away with it in part because of the greater notoriety and familiarity of the Sox. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, turn to the the senior circuit, NL MVP. Um, I dark horse. Uh, I'm gonna go with Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa. The Astros shortstop. Is... Except that the Astros are in the. American oh, League. they moved! Darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Darn it! You're right. I st- I still think of them as National League. <laughs> I was like, I don't think Carlos Correa could win that NL. He's MVP. that good. He's gonna win them both. Um, okay. Let's see. If it can't be him, I I guess you could say Bryce Harper or Ryan Zimmerman. I've got something for Zimmerman. Actually, not in a actually the national with the best overall offensive numbers. Danny Murphy. No, it's Anthony Rendon. Really? Yeah. Was well, he just not had enough plate appearances? Yeah. To- no, no, no. He's up there. I mean, Rendon in wins above replacement for NL position players. Rendon is currently fourth or tied for third. Okay, so you're not gonna let me switch over to Jose Altuve either on this nope. whole because he's still in the AL. I know it's such a technicality that the Astros can't win oh, National League awards. Okay, well then, who would you go with for National League MVP? So it pains me, as all success by former New York Mets pains me. I think the National League MVP of the first half is Justin Turner. Oh, he's he's been so good. And he, really and he was out for a little while there. Mm-hmm. He's always out for a little while. If you've ever owned him like I have in fantasy baseball, you know you, you don't get him all the time. But man, I mean, he's good. the Dodgers are the best team in the National League, and he's the best player on the on the best team. Yeah. So so if this is, I mean, obviously, so the problem for the National. Well, first, I hate the National, so I'm you know it's, you're gonna have to hold a gun to my head to vote for National. Second is they have got four candidates for MVP. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really four candidates for MVP. You really have no candidates for right, MVP. Right, right. The cross. So, so I'm going with Justin Turner. Fair enough. Uh, NL Cy Young. NL Cy Young. Uh, Scherzer. Scherzer is I, I can't stand yeah. the guy. I hate the guy. Really? Yes. Oh, you hate the Nationals. Yes. Uh, so Kershaw gets no love. I mean, you know. Yeah. What, what's no love in this context? Right. Just he's he's almost as good. I so well. So here's an interesting. Tra- I mean, not that wins above replacement is the be all end all of, of statistics. Yeah. But if you went by that, um, Scherzer's uh, pitcher specific, so non batting yeah, yeah. yeah, right, included right, right. WAR is four point eight. Kershaw is tied. With Scherzer's teammate Gio Gonzalez yeah. for second That's at three point seven. That's amazing. So, Those are all good numbers, but, no, but Scherzer's Scherzer. very special. Very Scherzer. Special. So, um, and National League Rookie of the Year, um, Bellinger, I guess. Yeah, Cody Gotta Bellinger. Be. Yeah. Um, okay, now here's some less By conventional the way, categories. Um, that was that was good. We we actually agreed. Yeah, actually, the, well, except you know this whole thing about AL versus NL. But well, yeah. um, I, I, I'm sorry to be a stickler about that. No, no, I, I think it, it makes it. And actually, I gotta say, I like the switch because I like the the fact that the Rangers and the Astros uh, play each other regularly, yeah. not just interleague. Okay, um, surprises. Uh, my my pick for most uh, surprising offensive player of the first half. Kyle Schwarber. Surprising in a good way, I should say. <laughs> Surprising in a good way. Um, for the AL, I'm going with my MVP and Rookie of the Year. It's Aaron Judge. Well, I just yeah. didn't see any of this really coming. Obviously. Um, for the NL, I'm going to go with Ryan Zimmerman because I thought he was done, or at least I thought he'd reduced to mediocrity, <sighs> yeah. and I really didn't see that. I didn't see this kind of resurgence coming. So I, I'm going to say I actually think that you know the pathetic Mets, who I've resisted talking about as much as possible, um, actually – had the wrong person chosen as their all-star because my candidate for a surprising offensive performance of the first half by a National League player yeah. is Jay Bruce. Nice. 
Yeah, he's well. Yeah, I guess how much better than recent years has he been? Um, a lot. Oh, so okay. I, I'm sorry. I, we, it depends on what metrics you're looking at. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. He's certainly doing better than they did the you know his his what however long he was with the Mets last season. Yeah. Well, he he's basically he had you remember his first game. He came up with the Reds, and I think he had like seven yeah. or eight RBIs yeah. and, and nearly hit for the cycle. This unbelievable. Uh, first half, I think Sports Illustrated put him on the cover with Bruce Almighty on the cover. Oh God! And it's kind of it was a little bit downhill. Since Bruce then. Almighty. I like that. Pick, Did you ever though. see the sequel to Bruce Almighty? There Evan a, Almighty. There was a sequel to Bruce Almighty. Oh my God! Steve Carell. It was it was all Steve Carell. Oh, that okay. Evan Almighty. I might have to go check that out because oh, I do wow. love me. And I did see Despicable Me three over over the holiday break. Yeah, um, I not so good. They kind of mailed that one in. All right. Uh, any more awards before we we run yeah, out of um, time? Uh, so surprising pitchers. Uh, I'm going in a good way. Alex Wood for the Dodgers. Yep. I've always liked Alex Wood. I think yep. it's great. I did not see this level of success coming. Yep. Uh, Jason Vargas toiling away in obscurity for the Royals, but no, no. having a heck of a so, year. So I actually Vargas is my is my current number two for AL Cy Young behind Chris Sale. Yeah, no, he's he's really been good. I think if he were playing in a bigger market, like, he'd really be hearing. I, about I mean, it. I think I think the AL Cy Young right now is Sale, Vargas, Stroman, and it's just a question of who has the best yeah. second half. Yeah, and and Sale's not just in Boston, but Sale's also got the track record yeah. of being the horse. And look at all the lefties, by the way. Go lefties! Isn't that, oh, you people. Um, <laughs> as far as team surprises, best you know, most surprising result, uh, obviously the Astros are the the biggest surprise, hands down overall. Um, but for the NL, what do you think? Diamondbacks, yeah. Rockies, Diamondbacks, both Rock, having pretty Rockies, good years. Rockies, Diamondbacks. Yeah, I think that's right. But Everyone else is pretty predictable. Well, I mean, in that, I, in the positive I, sense. I was going to say, I, I did not predict that the Mets would be this bad, and I did not predict that the Cubs would be right. this bad. In the negative sense, we th- the, the, the only reason right why the Mets crappiness. Uh, it, Injury-ridden, though it may yes, be, yes. right? Um, the only reason why that hasn't gotten more headlines is because of how bad the Cubs are. Yeah, that's right. And that, that to me, gives the Cubs the nod for the most uh, disappointing team Well, overall. yeah, because they're the defending World Series champions. Yeah, but just to fall off, not just a little bit, but to really have all their bats lose their mojo at the same time, it's really something. I, I, you know, I don't. If I were a Cubs fan, I'd be despondent. Except that, like, I probably still don't care. No, they got, I won, they got right, their win. They got and, theirs. And it's like, wow, they they used up all the mojo. They really did. We're done. We're <laughs> see you in you know twenty one twenty four. Speaking of being done, we should we should put a fork in this. Yeah, I guess we should. <laughs> all right. So, barring the need for an emergency episode, which the way today is going, we could be back by this afternoon. Indeed. Um, so I'm away next week. <gasps> Oh no! So we could either figure out some kind of yeah. Way well, to do this well, and maybe we'll get one in the can on Friday and put it out. I think week. episode twenty-seven is still going to happen, listeners. No doubt about it. Um, well, at some point. All right. I guess that's it for us. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.